Apparently 80% of people in, in the United States say that they don't know and have never met a transgender person. And that's a lot of the country, especially when you, you consider that more people say that they've seen a ghost in this country than a transgender person. <laughs> oh, we have Lord, some work Lord. to do. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on The Tightrope. This is where we engage in tough dialogues and try to keep our balance on even tougher issues. I am here with my co-host and dear friend, Dr. Cornell West. Cornell, how are you feeling? Oh, I'll tell you, I'm fortified. I'm fortified. Fortified, huh? That's it. Indeed, indeed, indeed. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. You know, I'm doing all right. I feel like I'm just beginning to recover from that whole election, you know, uh, energy. It finally feels like it's a little bit behind me. You know, I, I think I have a little bit of trepidation. I feel like there's potentially some nefarious things around the corner in the political arena that we're not yet being made privy to. What, what, what are you feeling? I mean, do you have any kind of sense about how that might be going on? Well, I mean, the neo-fascism is still... Uh rather intense in terms of undercutting the election, already trying to illegitimize the election. Uh, but the challenge is going to be once Trump is finally pushed back, exactly what Brother Biden and Sister Harris are going to do. Right. Are they going to fall right back into Wall Street greed, right back into Pentagon militarism, right back into plain lip service to this mass incarceration system, which is a crime against humanity. Are they gonna play lip service, you know, the poor people and black people and transgender and gays and lesbians and so forth. We're gonna see, we're gonna keep pressure on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, sometimes I worry that what I started calling white supremacy light is often worse mm. than the whole full bone, full blown, you know, sort of density uh, of white supremacy because it allows you to get caught up in the very situations you're talking about, where things get paid lip service, and so there's a sense of relief. I mean, the kind of mobilization that uh, that Trump encouraged, right, just by being such a horrible individual, right? Just by that, you know, got all this energy, counter energy challenging him. But, you know, what's going to happen now is really a question. How will we keep the momentum going? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it was, again, primarily black votes that ensured that America didn't go fascist. I know. I know. Uh, We're, it's like Baldwin always said, you know, basically keep people away from their worst selves. We, we yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, the exactly. other the other thing that be, is interesting to think about is that, you know, we're actually relitigating women's reproductive freedoms and rights all over again. And, you know, you would have thought that something like that would have maybe not died down, but not been at the heart of this kind of a mobilization. Right. You know, I think this is really interesting when you put it in the context of so much more visibility for trans people 
and for, you know, a queer non-binary uh, people in general, because of the way that it tries to sort of force biology to be determinism, right? That it wants to sort of say, you have this reproductive capacity, we're going to make you have to deal with it in its full consequences whenever nature decides. It's kind of returning us to a fixity that much of the culture and much of the uh, political social uh, experiences have really pushed open. You know, it said, this isn't, biology is not destiny. And yet here we are literally litigating this all over again. No, it's true. It's very true. And, and in some ways, it's part of the spiritual decadence and more decrepitude of the empire. That if you can't extend your deep love to precious trans folk, if you can't extend your deep love to gay brothers and lesbian sisters, uh, then what kind of love do you really have? Now, this has been always a problem for Black people, right? They couldn't right. extend the love to black people. So it was clear that they had a white supremacist regime in place. And the white supremacist right. regime is a gangster regime when it comes to black people, when it comes to people of color. And so given the gangsterization of the, of the country as a whole, people now are priding themselves on you know, viciously attacking and having contempt and having hatred toward the vulnerable and the weak, whatever form mm -hmm. that takes, you see. Right. And right. that's, the, that's the thing that, uh, that we've always had to uh, highlight, spotlight, fight against, push back. And as you say, in up, accenting the best of the country, we become in many ways the rescuers and the saviors of the country, even though we're the first ones crucified. I mean, it's so true. You know, we save a situation, we save people from themselves and then they want to yell at you for saving themselves. You exactly. know, why, why are you trying to save me from myself? Get out of here. Who you Makes think no you sense. are. Yeah, Ex exactly, exactly. Well, today we have a guest who, you know, I'm really excited to talk to with you because it really speaks to what we're talking about now, which is the degree to which we need to be profoundly more open and engaging with people's multiplicity of gender expressions in ways that would get to this capacity to respect, honor, and and uh, and and politically fight for those who are in vulnerable communities, which was how you put it a moment ago. So I'm I'm really happy to welcome Peppermint to the show today. Um, and Peppermint is uh, a fantastic. Hey, Peppermint, you're here. Hello, hi. We're so happy that you're here with us. Thank you for having me on the tightrope. It's been a yeah. while since I've walked on a tightrope, and I feel I feel good. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of scary up here. <laughs> We've been um, breakdancing on this tightrope, but we're glad to have you breakdance with us now. We just all right. Up. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Cornell and I, as you may have heard, we were just talking about you know just the sort of return to this kind of reproductive biological destiny, right? That the Supreme Court is attempting to force into everyone into. And I started thinking about it in the context of there being so much more open space. I mean, for the expression and political discussion of, you know, queer, transgender and other non-binary gender expressions. What do you think about this moment? Do you do you notice that tension, the kind of drive to turn people back? I mean, I know you're both a performer, a political activist. You came in, uh, you know, on the I think you were, were runner up on RuPaul's Drag Race and you're just a, a, people adore you as they should. I've watched your work. It's fantastic. You know, what do you think about this tension? Do you feel it in your community? Do you feel it in the in the drag community that there's an effort to kind of 
crush people back into kind of biological categories? Yeah, I wouldn't say so much in the drag category or in the drag community that uh, is generally a very open-minded and in my experience, liberal uh, community. But I certainly have felt that unusual, like it feels like a beaming back to the, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, even 50 years prior uh, with regard to an attempt at people's rights and trying to frame the conversation. It is an unusual conversation. It is harder to have the, the a dialogue about biology. Everyone doesn't necessarily consider themselves a science scholar. Uh, but I, so I think at face value, it's just an easy cop-out. It's an easy cop-out when we're specifically talking about using people's biology as a reason to restrict what they can do in this country or in any country that's a, a democracy, hopefully continually. Uh, we, we, it really is, a, I believe, a cop-out where people can just kind of intimidate the people that they're having the conversation with into not responding. Mm. Uh, only because we, if we use the same framework of biology being fixed, the only tools that the people that I've met can use are the ones that we learned in school that we didn't take much interest in anyway, and that we didn't really get good grades anyway. And so it's really just like a, almost an elementary school level grasping of, of these concepts of, of biology and sex. Right. Uh, we're not talking about scientists who are actually scholars in their in their scientific fields or in medicine using these as reasons to restrict the rights of individuals. Because from what I've heard, and I'm actually we're getting ready to do an event called Black Queer uh, Town Hall, and it's a mm. STEM queer Black science conference that we're holding in the new year. From what I've heard from people who are science scholars, there's nothing fixed really in the world of sex and gender in, in science. And that there's always another option. There are other things happening. You know, people argue that there's just two sexes. There are people who are intersexed and there are people who don't fit into every single box. And I'm not gonna right. try to explain science, but right. um, that certainly I don't believe should be a reason why, you know, when we're talking about the everyday lived experiences of people, let's talk about what's happening on a socioeconomic level. Let's talk about what's happening in terms of policies that actually affect the everyday experience of people. And when you talk about this sort of new wave of people uh, trying to use these reasons, uh, trying to reason us out of things, I think one thing that's really sad is that when we talk about limiting specifically in the and from the conversation around transgender individuals and trans bodies, when we talk about using science or any reason to limit, let's say, for example, womanhood and trans womanhood and draw a very close distinction and then try to talk about reasons why trans women don't fit into, some people say trans women don't fit into the definition of being a woman. And then those reasons, unfortunately, can almost always be used against other women who aren't trans, cisgender women who aren't trans. If you talk about biology, you're talking about body type, size, height, depth of voice, hands, chromosomes. There are lots of cisgender women or women who are not trans who fit into a category that isn't as black and white, let's say, or isn't as binary right. uh, as that. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, 
when we were fighting really hard and we did have one victory in force, it was 2019, not 2020, uh, where we were going to the Supreme Court while they were hearing the arguments uh, to challenge Title VII, which is workplace discrimination protections for everyone. A lot of the reasons that there were uh, arguments that the proponents of striking down Title VII were using were things that could be used against any woman or any man. Uh, right. Examples, you know, wh why trans people, sh you know, should not be protected because, you know, religion um, should trump their, their protection on the workplace. And any woman who doesn't act and look and conduct herself how women should, should right. not be, you know, my mom fits into that category. Right. And so, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, that's very common. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Go ahead, Cornell. I'm sorry. That is, that's the, you know, Sister Angela Davis always said justice is indivisible. So that we're so tied together. We're dependent on mm -hmm. each other. And she's so right about that. You start targeting one group and the next thing you know, they're going to be on their way to some of your other friend's house. And they may mm -hmm. in the end show up at your house with the it's same just, argument yeah. you used against them in that way. And this is true for race, mm -hmm. gender, sexual orientation, binary, non-binary, class, empire, and so forth. But as indispensable as science is, though, science can never bestow on any of us, binary, non-binary, whatever, the sanctity and dignity that we have. You see, that's a question of morality. That's a question of spirituality. And by morality, all I mean is integrity, honesty, decency, and generosity to others. And by spirituality, all I mean is using your empathy and imagination to conceive of a different world, better than the one we're living in. And they can have religious stories, secular stories, whatever. But what is it? Because I, because you, you spent, you, you coming out of Wilmington, Delaware? Is that right? Oh, you better believe it. <laughs> we got a lot of attention this year. <laughs> you one of the historic exemplars. You one of the grand ones. I'm thinking of Clifford Brown blowing his horn. I'm thinking of Bob Marley playing his guitar, spending his time in Wilmington, and now I did Sister Peppermint. How do you conceive of yourself in terms of sustaining your rich spirituality and morality, given all the mess you've had to come to terms with in your life? You know, uh, I ask myself that every <laughs> every morning. <laughs> uh, I would say that I don't know if it's considered a weakness from other people. I consider it a strength. But my sense of connection and I believe I have a very strong sense of connection and empathy with just others around me, other people, you know, even other beings, animals, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. folks, um, folks we share this, this planet with. And so yeah. I often operate in that world and in, in from, through that lens. And so in that regard, it's very easy for me to remain in touch with my gratitude. It's very easy mm -hmm. for me to remain in touch with, again, a sense of empathy and seeing what's happening around me and focusing on whatever I can do or focusing my energy to helping others and trying to communicate in a way that is effective for everyone to gain a level, a higher level understanding. And so that alone uh, really occupies and helps me occupy that space of spirituality and connection that you mm -hmm. spoke about. It's not so much a dedication to a type of spirituality on its own. It's really the work that I do to remain connected with other people. And I know that spirituality can be defined as something other than just being connected to other humans, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but 
that's my connection to spirituality is more of in my conscience, where we, how we connect with each other. I do believe in a energy in the afterlife. <laughs> and I think that there's some karma. I do believe in karma. <laughs> well, some people are in trouble then. <laughs> there's a lot of trouble on the horizon then for some people. <laughs> oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. Mm -hmm. Now, are there, are there towering examples in your own life and lived experience that you fall back on in family and history that constitute when at your back doses? I would say my grandmother, Mary Yancey, it, it might be a, sound a little kind of trite to say. Lord, uh, and say her name again. <laughs> her name, her her name is Mary name. Yancey, Mary yes, Johnson yes, Yancey. Yes. And she was, uh, you know, for my whole life, she was my, just my grandmother. We called her Gaga. Before there was Lady Gaga, we called her Gaga. <laughs> and the, the real, the first she, Gaga. The, real the Gaga. first we Gaga, that's Gaga, right. But this is the first one, this is the first <laughs> And she was uh, a great teacher and mentor to me. Um, mm. And, you know, she was very human. She showed me what it, what it means to be a human who, who works at, who strives towards greatness, but has, yeah very visible flaws as humans do. That's uh, right. All of us, all of them. All of us. And, and so I learned a lot of that greatness from her. And then I was able to, as an adult, go back and discover things about her that I never knew. I didn't know that she was credited as starting the Harrisburg race riots of 1969. Uh, she wow. was an educator. She worked in, uh, she worked with the Board of Elections. You know, I knew bits and pieces of this stuff, but I just didn't know. And so I always have an opportunity to look, go back and learn um, from her uh, whenever I want to indulge. And then in my personal circle, I would be just so remiss if I didn't mention my sister and mentor, a very good friend, Laverne Cox, who, um, oh, yeah, yeah, who yeah, is yeah, just yeah, a beacon Laverne, and also speaks very highly uh, of you, Dr. West. <laughs> Send my love and respect. I sure Send my love and respect, Sister Laverne, absolutely. So Peppermint, that's amazing uh, what your grandma Gaga was accredited with. And I wanna ask, do you think that some of your own political uh, vision, aspirations, as well as activism comes from her spirit or perhaps her influence over time? Did she, was she politically active in ways that you recall? And, 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 and how, how, do, how does she influence the kinds of activities that you've been involved in? You know, no, she was never political in the house. I didn't know much. Wow. I never even had a chance to kind of, she didn't expose me to any of that. Maybe I just wasn't checking for it because I was often, you know, watching cartoons or in the basement or whatever I was doing. Um, <laughs> and so I didn't get a chance to, to see any of, of her work in, in the political world. I didn't even hear her speaking about it. My mom tells me stories of accompanying my grandmother, her mother, to uh, the polls when she was a poll worker. And my mom would just, you know, probably sit in the corner and color or something. Uh, and then that inspired my mom to be a poll worker to this day. She just did the, she just worked at the polls in, in the 2020 election. Mm. And, and I was like, mom, you know, maybe this is the year to sit it out because of the pandemic and there's so much going on. And, and, you know, she's a woman of color and she's older, you know? And I said, mom, you know, maybe. And she was like, no, I'm dedicated to this. And then she invoked my grandmother. And so 
there obviously is a very strong connection there, mm. but for, for, so maybe that's where it comes from. Cause otherwise I can't explain it. Right. <laughs> now, so talk a bit about your activism, tell us and tell our tightrope community, you know, more about what your, what your activism has been about most primarily. And, and uh, you know, just, just share what you've been experiencing this year in terms of that. Happily. Thank you. Uh, well, I think my, my, quote, activism really started with just, it's in my mind, it's really just a deep concern with what's going on around me and in my environment, how it not only affects me, but affects those around, you know, others. And, you know, I guess it started, I remember seeing images in the 90s, growing up as a little, a little trans girl in the 90s, watching TV and, and hearing all of the artists and entertainers everyone talking about the AIDS epidemic. And as a kid, there was a lot that I obviously didn't understand, but being able to experience so many moments, so many deep moments, so many poignant moments, um, so many sad moments, just, you know, in my world, in, in, the, in the world around me, just watching through film and television, I didn't know anyone who, uh, that I knew was personally affected by AIDS and HIV at that time. But so many things were themed with this concern and with this, sort of sorrow. Um, one of the most effective things I think that personally affected me was the loss of Pedro Zamora, who was an AIDS activist, who was a housemate on the second or third, the third season of uh, The Real World on MTV. And I was probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Let's not talk about age, but I was of whatever <laughs> age. <laughs> You were just barely born, Peppermint. I was just a, yeah, a youngin. And somehow I was able to watch this show. And, uh, and I was so, I was just moved to tears after learning that he had died and seeing the tributes to him. And he actually, I think he passed, uh, the anniversary of his death was very recently, like a week ago or so something. And so that affected me for years to come. And so later, many years later, when I started working in the drag world in New York City, in the clubs and the bars, the, I had many opportunities to engage in, I don't even know if I would call it activism, but really helping bring my community, folks in who are basically my audience members, inform them of what was happening and developing in the, in the, on the front of AIDS and HIV education and prevention. I remember talking to someone, it's years ago now, so it doesn't matter. Lots of stuff was happening that shouldn't have been gone down in the bars and clubs in the 90s in New York. But um, I remember uh, late, uh, like 1999 or so, um, someone came up to me, he had been a regular at my show and he was a really sweetheart. I consider us friendly, we were acquaintances and he was very upset that day and mentioned to me, he disclosed to me that he had recently tested positive for HIV. And, you know, I was, it was very touching and, and um, I was moved. And I was also, you know, honestly, a little sort of confused or baffled why there had been so much AIDS and HIV education and sort of fear beaten into people in my generation and it somehow skipped his generation. He was 19 mm. years old. He I was see. 19. Wow. And too young to be in the bar, but he maybe he had a fake ID. I don't know. But yeah. either way, he was a, a young person in our community. And that really bothered me that, and I don't know, I don't presume to know what his education level was about AIDS and HIV, but it just prompted me to 
help turn the page and understand what was next. And so I volunteered for over 10 years with the HIV Vaccine Trials Network. And that was really my first foray in the world of activism. And then obviously being queer, identifying as queer, self-identifying as queer my entire life. Later on, when I was able to kind of articulate that in a better way uh, as being trans, it was apparent to me that we had a long way to go. And then, you know, the intersection that I live at, trans and black and female, there's never a loss of an opportunity. There's always an opportunity to fight for our rights because <laughs> they're always under attack. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's real, that's real. Yeah. I, I think that people could not in any way doubt that you have such a wonderful combination of intellect and eloquence on the one hand, and this wonderful style and spirit on the other. That's why I started off raising the question about spirit. Like, where does Sister Peppermint come from? What's been, who shaped her? How, how she end up being this person who could be in the world and yet at the same time be able to preserve your own sense of dignity and style and so forth. But as an artist, I want to ask that same question. How do you situate yourself as an artist in the studio with those letters to a lover and so forth? How do you situate yourself as an artist now in the rich tradition of queer and general transgender in particular as you lift your voice, the anthem of Black people? I have, as an artist, as a drag entertainer, as a singer and performer, and sometimes those things are all combined. Sometimes I focus more on one or the other. I have had moments to really kind of, you know, just focus on the fun aspect of it. Musically speaking, I've had of several, of several albums before. One was talking about put a dollar in my titty. One was talking about don't call me on your shady phone. Um, <laughs> but, and all those things are very real, but. Uh, you keeping it real. You keeping it real. You keeping it real. But, uh, you know, this, I guess, I had the opportunity and I, and I really wanna just gush a little bit on you, Dr. West, just for one second, because your quote, justice is what love looks like in public really resonated with me after several quote relationships uh, that I've had in the past, each time the relationships have gotten better. Maybe that's because I'm becoming better. I don't know if it's the world is becoming better, but what have you. I was in a relationship recently, just the best relationship I've ever had. My partner was so willing to show his love for me in public and not have any type of conditions on that. And I think that's obviously something that all humans want. It is definitely something that's fleeting for trans individuals, especially trans women and definitely trans women of color. We know that the rate of, I think there's now 35 on the record trans women who are transgender people who've been murdered in this country in 2020. It's the deadliest year on record for trans people. And it, I only mention it because today is Transgender Day of Remembrance. And, you know, many of those murders are committed at the hands of our partners, intimate partners, our lovers, our boyfriends, the people who we're having even casual romantic encounters with. And so it wasn't lost on me at all that I was in this relationship that was the opposite of that. And I didn't feel in danger. In fact, I felt very safe and loved. And so I needed to write about that. You know, I knew that the next whatever I was gonna put out, song, music, project, was gonna include speaking about that because here I am enjoying 
this moment and so many others are not. And again, that really resonates with me. And so I wanna to try to show other people, trans people, this is what's possible. You are worthy of being loved and worthy yeah. of being shown love. And I also wanna show people who are not trans, look at who we can be and look at what you can have with us. It's okay and it is safe to love and care for us, mm. you know? Yeah, that's, well, that's super Absolutely. powerful. Yeah. As, you know, as a woman, as an activist, you know, what would you say we can do to most make that case that you so eloquently just made? In other words, you know, when you think about rights for voting, you figure you pass some laws, right? It seems like there's a direct link between the problem and the mm -hmm. solution. Right. But when you're talking about being seen in your fullness, being appreciated, being respected, um, being cared for in the way you describe and what has to be overcome in terms of uh, heteropatriarchal, you know, cisgender demands right on people's minds. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, how do you how do you break that mold enough for it to be seen? I think uh, it is a, you know, I, Trisha, I don't know. Like the the truth is, I don't really yeah, know. No, I like, know. I, 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 it would have <laughs> been amazing was, if you did. <laughs> <laughs> if it was an easy answer. I think we'd 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 have gotten there by now. But I do believe uh, you are right that uh, obviously policies and legislation and rules of the house should be reflective of those uh, thoughts and those and a lot of those issues. And and but there is also the practical. You know, seeing people in your everyday life who have these experiences is no doubt going to be helpful. You know, when we think back to people were marching against, you know, segregation and they were like upset at the laws that were being passed in their states and they hadn't yet even gone to school with a black child. And, and they were so worked up about that. I think later on, you know, and certainly there's plenty, we still plenty of problems with the school systems, but I think, you know, when you talk to maybe some people a generation ago about what their experience was watching our country go from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s with regards to race relations, I think a lot of people's first example would probably be people they knew in school, people they knew around them, people they personally knew, not citing yeah. a law. And so I think that's what we need. And we learned from GLAAD that... Um, Apparently 80% of people in, in the United States say that they don't know and have never met a transgender person. And that's a lot of the country, especially when you, you consider that more people say that they've seen a ghost in this country than a <laughs> transgender person. Oh, Lord, we have Lord, some work Lord. to do. We have <laughs> we some work have some to work do. To do. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's scary right there. Wow. That's a powerful way of putting it. I never thought of it. Yeah. Like that's, that. I never even heard that one. I'm going to take, I'm going to quote you Peppermint. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Lord. But we do want to so, say on, yeah. on this day of remembrance, a trans day of remembrance that those 33 murders against our precious trans folk are crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. And we have to be very clear and, and, and loud about that because it's, it, it's so often rendered so invisible or pushed aside 
uh, pushed to the margins and the fringes in that regard. You see, we can't really walk around as if we are human beings with integrity and honesty and morality and spirituality and not acknowledge that's a crime against humanity. Just like when the police shoot our precious young black mm -hmm. folk or brown or whatever, that, that's mm -hmm. crime, those are crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. Drones dropped on innocent folk in Yemen, those are crimes against, so it is for the 35 that we've lost already this year. We still got another month and a half, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good and you know, this, this connection goes to the point that you were both making about the, you know, the ways in which we're bound up in the same circumstance where they're knocking on one man's door, then they end up on somebody else's door the next day and the next one, because, you know, this year has been a year of supported expression of hate, right? That there's uh -huh. been encouragement to express hate against who? Vulnerable people, black people, right. young people trans people, immigrants, right, who don't speak English, who are, you know, right. coming across the border, so on and so forth. Muslims, you know, it's been a real sort of a celebration of this kind of hate. So it really is true. Then eventually they're coming to your door. And I think this is going to be a I think I think trans activism has the capacity to basically be illuminating about this matter, you know, to think of that of the community as helping illuminate everybody's vulnerability, right? Professor Rose, you have, you nailed that. I think also it just, what you just said connected with uh, something that Dr. Angela Davis had said. I will paraphrase greatly because I don't remember it exactly, but she said that transgender individuals, queer folks, uh, but particularly transgender individuals are showing us a way to have a better understanding about not only gender and sex and sexuality, but also who we are as humans. And that was extremely paraphrased, but I think that kind of resonates with me on that same level. People think of trans people and queer people and, and oftentimes people of color as like these other like renegades or everything, but just humans who are, who have a different understanding of things other than the way that you may do it or that person may do it. But how we are all connected. I think it's just so crucial to see that we don't, no one wants to be put in a box. No one wants to be withheld. No one wants to be micromanaged or over, you know, regulated. And the, the only way to break free from like any type of imprisonment really is having a greater understanding of who we are, our bodies, ourselves, our minds, our spirituality, each other. And it's true that trans people and queer people and people in the queer community and Every marginalized community has something to teach the rest of the, the world. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that, I mean, when you look at just the history of humankind, and in the end, it's really about how do we learn how to see things given our blind spots and mm -hmm. feel more deeply given our indifference and act mm -hmm. more courageously given our proclivity toward conformity. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so uh -huh. trans folk, y'all see things that, you know, we straight folk just don't see. You, you're dealing with forms of marginality that you can see things through your lens as human beings articulated, expressed that folk don't see. Just like uh -huh. black folk can see things a lot of white brothers and sisters can't see. Uh -huh. and, and, uh -huh. and the question becomes, how do we lift those voices back to the anthem of black folk now. Lift when you say lift voice. every voice, you didn't say just lift straight voices. <laughs> mm. 
didn't yeah. say just, just live black bourgeois voices. It didn't say just live black voices in, in, in Connecticut as opposed to Mississippi. <laughs> no, no. Lift all the voices, trans voices across the board. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's the fundamental thing. Then my Bible tells me the least of these, the most vulnerable. Now, who are the most vulnerable? What you do unto them, you do unto me. Mm -hmm. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, see, you know, the, most of the pastors ain't got that memo. Don't get me wrong. The churches ain't got that memo for the most part. But that deep love overcoming through overloving, that's what it's about. Mm. That's what your grandmama understood. You see, that's what Trisha is asking her whole life. And in that way, you can't help but have a smile, even given all of the grimness and all of the, True, the, yeah. the, the ugliness in the world, you see. Peppermint, this dovetails with what I wanted to ask you. So I, I know we don't have a ton of time with you left. So I want to make sure I, I get it in because what, what Cornell just said about just your ability to be sort of, you know, a, a loving witness, right, to difficult situations. You know, I was really impressed and moved by your grace around the way that conflict around who would be considered eligible for RuPaul's Drag Race and who wouldn't based on their uh, gender expression, basically. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it, it really blew my mind as an issue because I was like, wait, so y'all are policing that boundary? I was like, hold on. <laughs> um, but just, just to recap, let me let me re let me recap for for people who may not be aware mm -hmm. and, and correct me, Peppermint, as soon as I get it wrong, which I want to do every once in a while. But basically, <laughs> the, the notion was that, you know, drag queens could technically, according to some, should only be male gendered individuals, queer men performing female as females and that trans women were there not starting out as men and therefore shouldn't they're basically what they start out to female to perform female. I mean, uh -huh. am I getting the debate proper in terms of what yeah, the argument I, was? They, I I would say that I don't think I've ever heard anyone even put it that graciously, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there've been, um, there's been some many arguments that were over the past several years centered around RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, many of them involved quotes from uh, people involved with the show, basically saying that on the show, they weren't going to allow women, certainly not women and definitely not trans women to compete trans women who had had any quote who had had any surgeries like that's basically and so i guess the most recent refinement of that was you can be on the show if you're trans as long as you haven't had any surgeries and i think that's problematic for two ways i think that's problematic because well my name was invoked in one of those interviews and my body was spoken about whether i had had this surgery or that surgery whether I'm a woman or not, whether I just think I'm a woman because I haven't had a surgery or this. And my feelings were hurt and I, I did have an opportunity to, to talk about it. The public really chimed in. I think that the, the general public and the audience of, of television in general is a different audience than it was 10 years ago when you could that's get away true. with saying things like this. Yeah, yeah, and so true. there was a certain level of accountability that just swooped itself and the problem yeah. self-corrected itself. Right. <laughs> I'll say right. that, but uh, at least in terms of its speaking points. 
But whatever happens on the show from here on out, we have yet to see. My fingers are crossed. I think that all right. shows should be more inclusive. I mean, what what country are we in? And well, that's a question. <laughs> that's unfortunately <laughs> yeah, a legit that's question. The t-shirt of 2020. Uh, but I do want to say, kind of harkening back to what we were talking about before, is that when we start uh, categorizing and, and qualifying trans bodies based on the surgeries that they've had then what we're saying about womanhood is that it is just boiled down to your body and what type of body. And those decisions are made that in that case, that those decisions are being made by everyone except for the the individual, by everyone except for the the, the woman involved. And that's not the situation that any woman wants to be in. Right. No, without a doubt. And, you know, it it occurred to me that in that case, and I'm not talking here about RuPaul, I'm saying more generally, if there's a rule Mm -hmm. about the boundaries of of performing in drag, then basically it's policing the bound, the gendered boundaries of the performance, which, you know, the whole point was a critique of that. Right. So it shows you that anybody can begin to erect these boundaries and to police them and to create exclusions no matter where they have originated in a hierarchical system of power. Um, but I listened to an interview of you and I thought you gave a fantastic description of drag that you know, someone asked you, we need a new definition because of this, this conflict that emerged. And you said, drag is the heightened gender experience for the sake of performance. And I thought mm-hmm. that, was, that was very powerful and enabling uh, in a way that I think um, depolarizes the the conversation mm-hmm. and some of the ways in which you were being positioned. But again, I thought you were very graceful about it. Thought you had grounds to be quite snippy. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard from people and, and I, I will, you know, I mean, what I was saying online might have been different than what I would have been saying if you were over at my house. Well, but that's what that line is for. There's supposed to be a line between what you say in your house and what you say on the doggone Internet. So I think that's the truth. truth. But remember what August Wilson says about black performance. He says it always authorizes a alternative reality. Richer, Mm. more joyful, more loving, more visionary for empowerment of others. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm. Let's see, that's that's the son of the chocolate side of Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. August Wilson. All right, PA, coming through again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, no, without a doubt. You think about your performances, just like James Brown, you're putting everything in those performances, all your heart, mind, soul, mm-hmm. what's inside of you, you given to the audience and they walk away more empowered. More enriched and more empowered. More enriched, yeah. absolutely. I agree. Right. I, you know, that's certainly the aim. And my, my goal is to affect, you know, folks and hopefully give them jo- a taste of joy and, and, you know, enjoyment, obviously, through whatever I can do on stage or as a performer. And I, but I do believe that the ones, the performances, the whether it's a live performance or even film and television, the works of art, the books, whatever that we read or that we we in, um, indulge in, all of those things that we take in, we w- I think we want to be moved. We want to see a movie or hear a story that's going to change our perspective, our lives, and Absolutely. when you see performers, black folks and queer folks often and one in the same, because I I don't necessarily, it is important for me every now and again to remind myself 
out loud that, you know, there's not a separation between black and queer, that those things right. are very intertwined. That's right. Uh, but when we, when we see those, when we hear those stories that we don't always hear, then we are, there's no other option if we're really listening other than to be profoundly moved and, and affected and more enriched. And that's why we had, um, we did an event this summer called the Black, again, called the Black Queer Town Hall, which after so many days and months in the quarantine and pandemic of seeing our Black brothers be needlessly murdered at the hands of our police on video uh, in front of our faces, inescapable, you know, we're just in our apartments awaiting out the pandemic earlier in the year and seeing all these videos and hearing, seeing all these stories, I, there's never had been a moment in my life other than maybe watching a scary movie that I ever wanted to see a person be murdered on camera. Mm. And, you know, not that that should hold any more weight than just hearing a story about it, but it was in such a, a raw way that mm. myself and Bob the drag queen were, were so moved and distraught and pretty much every feeling, you know, as everybody was and many black people were, we were so sick of seeing ourselves being slaughtered on TV and on our phones and on social media over and over again. And it was like this abuse. And so we really wanted to have a moment to celebrate black queer joy, um, mm. see these entertainers, hear these people speak, have panels and discussions. And so we had the, we held the first annual black queer town hall which was basically an event that had all those things, performances and panels. Uh, we had lots of really distinguished guests. We had Dr. Angela Davis as our keynote speaker. Uh, and uh, we, we raised over $250,000. Some of that ooh. went to charity, but we weren't just gonna be black people that were just giving money away. We wanted to pay all the black folks that were speaking and performing. We wanted to pay everyone very well. And we were able to do that. And that was our goal. You know, this wasn't just like just giving money to charity. There are lots of organizations that that are doing great work. We're not a charity organization. We are an organization to what you said, providing enrichment to other people who want to hear our stories. Absolutely. And they they will give their dollar and we will give them an experience. And that's what we did. Right, right. Wow. Wow, that's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned Bob, the drag queen, because mm -hmm. I love that show. You know, we are here because of yeah. the ways in which it opens up the whole notion of who drag is for. And it's an, a profoundly humanizing, very well done show from my vantage point. I'm open to being wrong, but that's my reading of it. No, you're so right. I mean, I think the, the Emmy nominations prove that. And the fact that it just got picked up for a second season definitely proves that I'm so proud of Bob and Shangela and, and Eureka, the queens that are on the show. And it's so funny watching the show, the drag, I mean, yes, the underlying piece is that drag is for everyone, but then what you are, drag is like the least consequential part of that show. Exactly. You know? <laughs> it sort of brings you in and then they're like, okay, enough, that's not yeah, what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. But that that really, again, and I know we're we're being repetitive, but I think it's so important for our listeners to really say to sink in and to dig into this point, which is that when you really get to manage and see where people are honestly and you explore that mm -hmm. from a good place, the connections that get made are much deeper than the thing you thought you were going to see or the thing mm -hmm. you thought you were trying to transcend. Right. You know, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's what you learn from that. That's what you learn from the story you were telling about, you know, integration and 
you know, worries about it before you even have a chance, so on. And what you were saying about your partner who was, you know, so uh, able to transcend some of those boundaries. So it's, it's a very important piece of the puzzle. I want, before you go, I want you to just tell us about your, your organization, if it has a website, both, I think there were two you mentioned. So why don't you share that? Because I want to make sure people go and find you and put you in their yeah. network. Yes, absolutely. Well, the, the easiest way for people to find me is on my social media, all platforms, Peppermint 247, like 24 seven. And people, I would be remiss if I didn't give a, a direct plug to my new album that I just talked about that was inspired by my, di- basically my personal diary set to music. It's called A Girl Like Me, Letters to My Lovers. Uh, really quickly, it's basically that relationship that I was speaking about, it lasted about a year. It ended, spoiler alert, Uh, but I'm very grateful for it. And so I wrote 15, 16 songs. Uh, It spreads over three EPs, which is the beginning and the middle and the end of the relationship. The first one just came out, uh, Girl Like Me, Letters to My Lovers. The other two will come out later on next year. It's available now for streaming. People should check it out, please. It's my heart on a, I I would say on a tape or a record. It's not... It is actually available on vinyl, uh, but it's on my heart on an MP3. Um, and so people should check that out. And then uh, in addition, if you want that enrichment, please, or more enrichment, then you should check out, uh, go to blackqueertownhall.org. We have events pretty much quarterly. We do events. The next one is coming up in the new year. It's a STEM uh, science conference partnering with some folks out of Philadelphia. We're just in the, in the planning stages of that, but it looks to be very promising. Uh, mm. We did another event in Minneapolis, uh, which is of course the city that George Floyd is from. And then our inaugural event, uh, which was during Pride in June. And so mm. that we're gonna repeat that again, that'll be annual, uh, but people can get more information and follow Black Queer Town Hall on all social medias and the website. Mm. Fantastic. Let me just add that wonderful YouTube of you in the studio in the making of the album, which is just magnificent. The ways in which you moving back and forth (laughs) with the folk in working with you, your reflections, your laughter, your artistic expression and so forth. We 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 would recommend that as well. And we just hope that you continue to bear witness to your truth your love, your justice, because it's connected to our truth, our love, our justice. And 10 years from now, where do you see yourself, do you think? I don't know, some people are like, girl, you better run for office. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, I think I'll wait to see what happens. I'm, I'm gonna put my energy towards those, uh, the, two, the Georgia runoff election that's happening in the, in the beginning of the year. Oh yeah. Uh, 10 Very years cool. from now, I hope to be, um, just, just happy. Mm. <laughs> yes. As I am now, I hope to continue to be as happy as I am. No, that's, that's beautiful. beautiful. That's, that's beautiful. beautiful because we need that spirit. Well, Peppermint is such a joy to have you. You know, we, you are welcome on the tightrope anytime you want to climb up on this crazy little space. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we'd love to hear when the next album comes out, let us know. Best of luck. I'm so glad you got a chance to share the black queer peppermint 247. I'm more like Trisha eight hours. I should, cause I don't have 24 <laughs> seven. I'm maybe eight. Closed. Um, I've changed my date, but anyway, Peppermint 247. It was fantastic to meet you and keep on keeping on the, you know, on the right side of justice where you are. Thank you so much. 
and you all have a blessed day. We will. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. All right. All right. Okay. Indeed. That was so wonderful. So yeah, wonderful. I know that was, really. that was really uh, a blessing. There was so much uh, synergy really of, of oh, it's exactly so she much got special, special kind of spirit, special yes. kind of mind and spirit. Ain't no doubt about it. Yep. Yep. Definitely. No um, and it's great. We could have her on, on this, on this, you know, trans remembrance day. So that's well, exactly. reinforcing, you know, that when was, people are paying yeah. attention more than, more than they might otherwise be. So that's, that's exactly that's really right. fortunate. So that's it's exactly time for, right. to open our doors, professor West to our office hours. And uh, we got this week, we're going to start with an email that I received from a Mr. Gene Burke. Uh, in the midst of this whole lot of firsts this week, you know, this idea that there's a first person going to be the first female vice president, so on, first black vice president. Uh, and so I'm, we're going to answer tackle Jean's question as the, one of the main pieces of our office hours. OK, so I'm going to read it. You ready, Doc? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, you ready. You're always ready. I know that. OK, ever ready. Ever ready. All right. OK, so Jean wrote and said last week. You, meaning me, and Dr. West dealt with the issues of black voting for Democrats and Biden as the lesser of two evils without getting much in return. But blacks were instrumental in defeating Bernie Sanders, who, if he had been elected, would have given black people much more than Biden, whom they did vote for. How can this play it safe mentality in the black community be changed or where the black people who voted for Biden in the primaries, were they wise because Biden has a better chance, had a better chance of beating Trump? So we want to, I guess everybody wants to hear from you on this question first, which me too, actually. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's a wonderful question. I mean, it's the second part of it is hypothetical because we we're wondering what would have been the case if so-and-so had happened. You see now in retrospect, we say, Okay, Biden did in fact win. Right. I, it was unclear to me whether he had what it takes to really beat Trump because I didn't see enough excitement and enthusiasm among his followers to right. push him over. Now, of course, we spent a whole lot of time trying to push Biden over. We make, make videos <laughs> and speeches and writing tons of uh, letters, op eds and, mm -hmm. op eds and so forth, but still trying to tell the truth about Biden. So I think there's a truth in both parts of her question. The latter one about whether in fact folk were wise because Biden could beat Trump, that turned out to be true. It was very important to make sure Trump is pushed out of the White House. There's no doubt about that. That was a bottom line. That was a fundamental objective. And it looks like we've been able to achieve it if we can push back these last attempts to undermine the election. But the first section, of the question about black folk not voting for Bernie Sanders, you see, a lot of that has to do with the milk toast black neoliberal leadership that is too often tied, not just to the Democratic Party's establishment, but it's tied to Wall Street, it's tied to big pharmaceutical companies, it's tied to big insurance companies, it's tied to Pentagon militarism. So you end up with these black neoliberal leaders who are not mm. giving a priority to black poor people and black working people, but rather a priority to either their donors, the people who they get money from, or the folk who are very much in their circles. Right. 
Right. You know what I mean? Yes. And we can't ever forget our black poor and working people. You can't ever forget our black vulnerable folk, the precious trans and the gays and lesbians and others. Now this is true for whites and, and browns and indigenous peoples and Asians as well, because we have a moral and spiritual standard of excellence in our movement, but we begin on the chocolate side of town and that black neoliberal leadership that too often gets paid off, mm-hmm. they need to be held accountable. Mm, yeah, yeah. That, but you that know, that makes sense, though. My yeah, niece. yeah, that makes very, very good sense. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, in accord with what you're saying. Um, and I guess where I would drill down, and then I, I would ask you this yeah. question: What, yeah. what do we do with the fact that? If black people had thrown their votes behind Bernie, could Bernie beat Trump is is is, is a legit question. Because what happens to all the uh, the milk toast, you know, neoliberal whites. Right. Because they don't feel safe and they're a very big constituency, both as voting and as political leaders. And, you know, is it a risk black people should take? Right. What what are the consequences of different risks here? Um, Absolutely. Uh, and, and I had and, uh, some magnificent yeah. conversations with brothers and sisters in barbershops and beauty salons and churches in South Carolina with Sister Nina Turner and others. And they would give us powerful arguments against what we were doing. We would listen closely if they gave the argument that, well, we think maybe Bernie can't beat Trump. And we said, well, we think he can, but we weren't sure. We're not going to lie to the people. We we didn't know, but we thought he could because he could generate enthusiasm. But if they believed a lot of the lies of Biden's cheerleaders, because he had cheerleaders running around South Carolina talking about he's been fighting for the downtrodden all his life. Quit lying. Yeah. He's an architect of the mass incarceration system. That's a crime against humanity. He was the yeah. cheerleader of the invasion and occupation of Iraq. That's a crime against right. humanity. He unleashed Wall Street greed, crushing yeah. poor people and working people. That's those are crimes against humanity. Yeah, and then don't forget figuring out how to collaborate with Strom Thurmond. Well, that that was part of the mass incarceration. See, he's working right. with the promoters of the old Jim Crow to help institutionalize a new Jim Crow. Yep. Now you see, are we supposed to forget about that? Right, hey, right. But again, but money. again, you got to put it in the context of what we're up against with Trump, right? And and right. you know, it, to right. me, when you said, you know, we didn't know if Biden could win, and you know, many of us wrote op-ed pieces to push him across the line. Look, I mean, in some ways, Trump was so insane that he kind of beat himself amongst a certain constituency. Right. right. I mean, I think right. people came out right. as much for Biden as they did just to say, I can't deal with this with this maniac anymore. It's true. It's you know, true. I mean, it's almost like, you know, the other side is helping you win just by being so extreme. Uh, and that, by the way, although this isn't Gene's question, I'm more worried about a refined, sophisticated, elite expression of Trump. In the Absolutely. Because once people Absolutely. know that this is possible, they're going to have an elegant of the likes of whatever would be today's version of a William Buckley, right? Uh, uh, an esteemed, intelligent, all equally politically dangerous person. So for that's me, the worry exactly is more right. about that than really than anything else, honestly. That's so true. And you think, you know, that with, with the pandemic, depression-like levels of economic impoverishment, and unemployment, underemployment, and then with the neo-fascist gangster in the White House, he still gets 
almost 60% of white brothers votes, 55% of the white sisters votes, 30% of the Asian vote, 31% of, of the Latino vote, 30% of the Jewish vote. He got 28% of the queer vote. He only got 14% last time. He got 28%. You say, yeah, what did they, oh, what was what, the upside what, what, of that? Yeah, I'd exactly. love to. But then look at the black brothers, 19%. Yeah, well, we got to, you know what? We need a show about that, Doc. Oh, you ain't lying. You I'm, I'm you know, Lord, when I heard mighty. it was, when I thought it was 8%, I was mad. But now, that's 90. 80% yeah. of the black brothers that we voted for Biden and 19% went with Trump. You think of like, dang, come on. Come That's on. for every five. On? That means for every five brothers, one of them voted for Trump. One. Exactly. Is that right? For the, I... the, the, the courageous, brilliant black sisters, about 92% voted for Biden. Of 93%, only 7% voted for Trump. Yeah. So your point about a, another Trump coming along, who's not as narcissistic, who's not as gangster-like as Donald Trump is himself. Whew, America would go fascist like that. Yep, right. Before we even get to the poll, we're going to look up and find poll. him on the TV. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's so like a Boris Johnson in, in Britain or Nathan right. Yahoo in, in Israel, these very yeah. polished gangsters. Yeah, yep. You see, Trump is not polished. He's a gangster, no, he's, but he's not polished. Yeah, no. And he's very explicitly trading on racial, you know, tropes and xenophobia. So there's going to become a time when it's not a not moving back to a dog whistle, but not being so bullish. And when he whoever can thread that middle ground between those two, I think is going to be a formidable uh, option. That's so true. for me, the answer to this office hours problem is that the question of of choices is complicated by this arrangement of investments that do not comport with what we expect them to comport with. Right. I mean, just That's from the right. voting scenarios you're talking about. That's um, right. So, you know, it's hard to say that um, that there's, you know, an easy best choice that black people should be voting. We just need we know we need to vote. And uh, we, we were all still holding on by a thread. But um, but I just think it's not that straightforward, you know, about what That's the exactly options really right. are. That's why in the end, you know, the fundamental answer is very much what we were talking about with our, our dear sister Peppermint, that we've got to be true to ourselves to hold up the highest moral and spiritual values with memories of our grandmothers and, and, and those who loved us and shaped us. Uh, and then to be in solidarity with other folks who are also concerned with having integrity, honesty, decency, so that when we have social motion and momentum and movement, it's a formidable one, not just in terms of numbers and quantity, but right. in terms of quality. Yes, indeed, indeed. And uh, on that note, I believe office hours are going to come to a close just for right now. You know, we have them all the time and uh, we were just grateful for your questions. Thank you for those of you, you know, write to the tightrope and uh send more questions, join Patreon and ask questions there. We, we love being in conversation. We, I love being in conversation with Cornell and we love being in conversation with you. So um, thank you all very much for joining us on the tightrope. Thank you, Peppermint, for gracing us with your gifts and, 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 and spirit today. And thank you, Dr. West, for being a fantastic partner in crime. Have every good evening and thanks for joining us on the tightrope. Thank you, Sister Tricia. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's like that's like a version of good night walton <laughs> i like that i like that we gotta keep that <laughs> thank you sister trisha i love that okay cornell we gotta keep that one 